Hey everybody, this is Scotty here with uh, just a little disclaimer. Amelia apparently had trouble with her microphone connection, so that's why the audio on her end is a little uh, less good than it normally will be. But that is fixed for the next episode, so hope you guys enjoy. I think we've heard of that before Stranger stories every day Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring So listen friends, we'll blow your mind With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing Hi Hi Well, welcome here we are to, Yeah, welcome to the Weirdest Thing podcast It occurred to yeah. me, Scotty, that like we didn't really talk about um, Or did we? Did we really talk about like why we decided to start doing this? No, I mean, I think we sort of mentioned it, but do you want to I mean, give a quick go, rundown? We can go into it a little bit more, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Scotty and I have been friends for, oh my God, we're coming up on like legit, because I, kind of, I kind of take the, the filming of Send as our, yeah. like really the launch of our, of our friendship. Yeah, I think that's... And we're legit coming up on 10 years. Yeah, because that was October of 2010. Yeah. 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 So, wow. um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Scotty, local filmmaker here in town and, um, asked me if I wanted to do this movie called send. I said, sure. And we basically spent about 48 hours in one spot making this movie. Cause it mm-hmm. was just, it was just me and, and, and Scotty, there was another woman there who's doing makeup and stuff, but yeah, uh, we was, had a couple people coming in and out to help out for yeah. various scenes, but like, yeah. The movie is basically just your character talking into a webcam. So it was just us, like, so jammed into a bedroom. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And we basically spent the whole weekend just kind of telling each other the weirdest stories yeah. that we could not even, I mean, not come up with, because it's not like we were telling tall tales or anything, but it was just like, oh, have you heard about this? And, yeah. oh, well, do you know about that? And, oh, one time in the mountains, I, you know, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so we've basically spent the last 10 years exchanging the the craziest, spookiest, weirdest stories yeah. that we could find with each other. And then I think decided, I guess, maybe to see if anybody else wanted yeah. to hear us <laughs> Pretty also much. do that. Yeah. Well, I figure if we're like wasting so much time going down weird internet rabbit holes about plane crashes and right and stuff it's like let's see if anyone else is into this right we might Uh, at least do it for the people yeah (laughs) yeah this is what the people (laughs) demanded was this show (laughs) (laughs) look demand was so high that we you know it would would have been cruel to not continue (laughs) exactly this is really this is a public benefit that we (laughs) yeah so that's that's kind of what led us here uh and why why we're gonna share the weirdest things we can find on the internet with you guys Mm mm-hmm every week question mark yeah we'll see we'll see okay so who goes first i go first you go first so yeah this week we're doing a couple like spooky paranormal stories so i am going to talk about the legendary la llorona can we insert like wind sounds here yeah i'll I'll find something okay (laughs) (laughs) awesome um so I also just want to give a little content warning, I guess, before I get into this, because this is going to broach on some somewhat dark subject matter. Granted, most of it is firmly entrenched in the realm of legend and folklore, but 
some of it isn't. So if you're squeamish about uh, that kind of stuff, I think you can, if you know anything about La Llorona, uh, you kind of know where it's going. But if you're squeamish about, I guess I'll just be very clear, uh, infanticide or uh, familius, familicide? Familicide, I think. Familicide. Um, then maybe you can skip forward to Scotty's portion. Uh, <laughs> all right, there we go. Okay, so La Llorona. She is, let me start out in saying that she's kind of based in the white lady, uh, aka lady in white myths. Like right. there are several of these myths all throughout the world, uh, which is generally like a female ghost spirit apparition type thing dressed all in white. They usually hang out in rural areas and they're associated with legends of tragedy and they're generally passed down via oral storytelling yeah versions of the white lady myth appear all over the world including but not limited to brazil canada the czech republic estonia germany hungary ireland malta the netherlands the philippines thailand the united kingdom the u.s and eastern russia all involve women who met some kind of a tragic and they were either killed by their husbands, they died on their wedding days or wedding nights, they died in childbirth. There's a lot, 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 a lot of them that are died on their wedding nights. Some of them were murdered by their husband-to-be. A lot of them killed themselves. Like I was like, killed herself on her wedding day, threw herself off of a, you know, a castle on her wedding day, threw herself on her wedding day. Interesting cross-cultural commentary on the institution of marriage there. Yeah. Which is actually also interesting and I'll get to later. There's a lot of like, I feel like there's a bunch of these myths that were created for the purpose of, you know, like, like keeping children safe, like keeping children out of areas where they could drown, they could be sucked into a bog, they could you know, fall off of rubble and that kind of right. thing. I think there's also stuff in there. I think there's probably also some like sort of deeply rooted underlying like virginity, chastity stuff oh, in there. Yeah. And that's what I think about that. Um, (laughs) However, with all of this stuff, there's actually very few that deal with women who killed their own children. And that brings us to La Llorona. Llorona. Yes. So La Llorona is Spanish for the wailing woman or the wailing woman or the crier. It's a woman who drowned her children and mourns their deaths for eternity, roaming the areas as a ghost or apparition. She's usually dressed head to toe in either white or black, like I've heard Mm -hmm. both. Um, and yeah, I feel like when I've heard the stories in the past, it was usually like she was dressed in black, but then you've told me that you found a bunch where she was dressed in white. So that's yeah. And anecdotal evidence that I have is, is like 50, 50. Yeah. Like some people know her as being dressed in black. Some people know her as being dressed in white. This particular story is found somewhat, I can't say somewhat, it's found pretty exclusively in Latin American countries or communities. Mm-hmm. Similar tales can be found in the, I, okay, there's going to be a couple words in here that I'm going to do my best to say correctly. I'm probably going to butcher them. Uh, I tried to look up as many pronunciations as possible, but some of them were impossible to find. But similar stories can be found in the Chumash. Uh, they're an indigenous people in Southern California. They actually mm. also believe in La Llorona. Like they have another uh, sort of supernatural creature that kind of goes hand in hand with La Llorona, but they actually believe in her. They believe her to be an omen of death. And she also obviously bears a resemblance to some Greek myths, namely uh, the myth of Lamia. 
who was a mistress of mistress. Okay. There's also going to be a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy air quotes in this. <laughs> and the first one is going to be the mistress of Zeus, because I don't believe that Lemia would have had a ton of say in whether or not. She yeah. Was gonna be I think mistress. usually when you're talking about the girlfriend of Zeus or the mistress of Zeus, there's yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, um, that's getting into coercion it. going on. Yes, thank you. That was much better than the word I was going to say. So she's a mistress of Zeus. Hera finds out, and Hera is, you know, not to be trifled with. So Hera goes and kills Lemia's children. Good. And then there's the much more obvious connection to Medea, who mm-hmm. murdered Jason's children, Jason and the Argonauts, for anybody right. who uh, is wanting to know, when Jason left her for another woman. So. Lots of good stuff like that. There's also a version in Venezuela who is a woman who, let me see, a woman who died of sorrow after either she or her family murdered her children. Venezuela's La Llorona is also closely tied to another vengeful female spirit called La Sayona, Hmm. who is the vengeful spirit of a woman who goes after adulterous men. Mm, um, I like that. I told my mom that, and she's like, "Well, it's a good thing we didn't have that in Bolivia because there wouldn't be any men around." And I was like, "All right, mom, <laughs> spitting, spitting some, uh, some fire there." So, out of all of these multiple versions that exist of La Llorona, they can agree on a couple of key things. It was a woman; she was doomed to walk the earth in search of her children after she drowned them. Those are kind of the main main tenets of it. The sort of history slash origin of the story is somewhat multi-layered, I'll say, because it's been in the Americas since the conquistadors. So since oh, wow. the 16th century. Yeah. There's been, I didn't realize it went back that far. Yeah. And there are some people who say that it actually has roots in German folklore from the 1400s, but honestly, I'm just going to like... Yeah. Just like <laughs> chop that out because because I don't want to believe it. So um, okay. <laughs> um yeah, so it's a widely known myth throughout uh Central and South America and the Latinx communities in the US, particularly and possibly exclusive to the Latinx communities in the US Southwest. I'll get into that a little bit more later. She's often identified as being inspired by Malincin, who is also known as La Malinche, who was a Nahue woman who was Cortez's interpreter and second air quotes of the episode, mistress. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm going to use heavy air quotes because uh, Malincin was an enslaved woman who was either given or sold to Cortez's army, mm. along with 20 other enslaved women that were, provide, that were offered to provide service. Like yeah. they were meant to be servants and also then explicit, it's explicitly stated that they were also meant to provide sexual services. Yeah. Um, so that's not a mistress. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So all of the stuff about Malincin slash La Malinche has to be understood through the lens of like imperialism because of that. At best, Malincin was 19 when she was sold to Cortez's army. At worst, she was 14. Ugh. Yeah. Malincin is a little like interesting side note here. She is often referred to as the mother, the mother of the modern, modern, again in air quotes, new Mexican race because they think that the sort of blending of European and indigenous blood of the Americas started with her. Oh, there's wow. Probably no, there's probably no way that's true. 
but she's often seen like that. Um, She has a super, super complicated story in history because she was Cortez's interpreter. That's widely documented. And I mean, like there is a lot of like artwork and everything that shows Cortez and she's right there. She's, she obviously holds a position of power in all of this. Um, Yeah. There are people who see her as like the great betrayer of Mexico Mm. because of this, because she was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and interpret and do all this stuff. However, she has had in the last few decades, there's been sort of a renewed speculation about her. And there are people who sort of see her as an, as a new feminist icon, you know, because she, she did become a very, very powerful woman in the colonization of, of Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. so go read up on her. She's very, she's very, very interesting, very cool. The reason that people think that she's the inspiration for the La Llorona story is because there are versions of Malincina's story that say that Cortez took Malincina as his, as his mistress, had children with her, and then abandoned her when all was said and done to marry a Spanish noblewoman. So Malincina was like, F this, F you, and drowned her children in the river. However, there are also records of a surviving son of Malintines and Cortez, whose name was Martin. Like, that's yeah. documented. So, so who knows? <laughs> so who, who knows? A lot of times they actually use, I think also a lot of people use La Llorona as a metaphor for Malincine and mm-hmm. it's sort of the, the death of the indigenous culture at the hands of the Spanish, you know, stands in for the, the drowning of La Llorona's children stands as a metaphor for the death of the indigenous yeah. culture at the hands of the Spanish. Okay. <laughs> this was a, this was a story where I was like, cool, I'm going to go into some of this stuff. All right, cool. We've got the stuff about, about uh, like Cortez and Malincine and like all of this stuff. And that topic alone is so massive yeah. that I, I, like this story took so long to research just because it was an, it was a legit rabbit hole that I just kept yeah. being like, click, 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 click. And you know, all of a sudden I had like 43 tabs open <laughs> on my computer yeah. <laughs> and all that. But another, uh, another cool little tie, another cool thing that ties La Llorona to the conquistadors is um, before the Spanish arrived in uh, Tenochtitlan, there were eight ugly omens that were said to have like predicted the the arrival of the Spanish. The sixth was a woman was heard crying in the night, calling for her children to flee. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that ties everything from then to La Llorona. The earliest known published published reference to La Llorona was a sonnet written by Mexican poet Manuel Carpio in the late 1880s. However, there is no mention of infanticide Hmm. she's just a sad woman who was murdered by her husband oh interesting yeah so on that note i want to take just a second here to talk about infanticide maternal filicide and family annihilators fun topics (laughs) let's do it because they do because i think they come up and i think that they're i think when we look at myths like la llorona i do think these things need to be taken into consideration oh yeah for sure so yeah, so uh, for anybody who doesn't know, infanticide is the murder of children under one year old. Maternal filicide is the murder of children by their mother. And then we have family annihilators who uh, mm-hmm. uh, are people who kill their whole families. Yeah. Part of the reason I want to bring this up is 
Because with like within the story of La Llorona, the only surviving member of the family is in fact the husband slash father. Yeah. It is a legend and all of those things, but we know a lot of these a lot of times these things are based some there's a nugget of truth right. in there. And I'm just saying that we only have his version of the story. Yeah. So I just wonder if what we're actually dealing with is not maternal filicide, but rather a family annihilator. Mm-hmm. That the husband that the husband slash father was a family annihilator. A couple of creepy facts about family annihilators from a 2013 study. There are four reasons men commit familicide. How, how do I say it? Familicide. Familicide. Additionally, familicide, which is also family annihilators, overwhelmingly men. Yeah. Like overwhelmingly men. So there's four reasons why men commit familicide. They are self-righteous killers who hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family. Disappointed killers who believe uh, their family has let them down in some way. So this is where like honor killings and stuff come in. Yeah. Anomic killers who see the family as a symbol of their own economic success and some kind of financial failure means the family no longer serves this function. Yeah, so real messed up. And then paranoid killers who have a desire to protect their family from a perceived threat. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like religious maniacs and stuff. Yeah, and and uh, I think these like that mostly falls into people who are um, like struggling with mental illness. Right. Yeah. Most family, okay, so this is, let me read this because this is a direct quote from the study. Uh, Most family annihilators fell into the self-righteous or anomic categories, meaning that they felt that the mother had done something to ruin the family or that they held no purpose anymore because of financial ruin. So uh, fell into the self-righteous or anomic categories. Uh, And those who were self-righteous were often histrionic and dramatic, choosing significant dates like Father's Day to commit their crimes. It's clear that it's men that usually resort to this type of violence. And these four characteristics are closely related to a man's ideas about gender roles Mm -hmm. and his place within the family. There are a variety of ways for men to be men, but what really is happening with family annihilation is that these are usually the men who will reach a tipping point about various things within the particular category of family annihilator that we identify. To see it simply as being about women having a greater role in modern society might be trying to imply the woman is responsible, whereas Mm -hmm. in fact, it's always about the man. Yeah. So that sucks. Um, But also not at all surprising. (laughs) Not at all surprising. Studies show that women who commit filicide have frequent depression, psychosis, prior mental health treatment, and suicidal thoughts, and they have five major motives. Um, Additionally, even when they have female family annihilators, they're like, that's a whole other study. Like, they can't even be grouped into having the same reasons as men. Yeah. So the five major motives for maternal filicide are altruistic filicide, a mother who believes death to be in her child's best interest, mm-hmm. acutely psychotic filicide, which is a psychotic or delirious mother who kills her children without comprehensible motive. And that's like following uh, command hallucinations, mm-hmm. fatal maltreatment filicide, which is Munchausen by proxy, yep. which I know you yeah. love. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds awful. Scotty does not love Munchausen by proxy. Yeah. We are both fascinated with it. Right. Um, obviously, death is not usually the anticipated outcome yeah. of uh, Munchausen. 
unwanted child filicide, which is where the mothers see the child as a hindrance. There's also neonaticidal filicide, which is mothers who, who murder their children before they're 24 hours old. Ooh. And those mothers are almost solely young, unwed, and had no access to prenatal care. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The rarest by far is spouse revenge filicide, which is what mm-hmm. La Llorona would fall into, uh, occurs when the mother kills her child or children specifically to emotionally harm the child's father. Mm-hmm. Mothers who commit filicide are often poor, socially isolated, full-time caregivers and domestic, uh, victims of domestic violence. The overwhelming majority of family annihilators are white men in their 30s. They don't have criminal records. They're good, upstanding husbands and fathers, and they're publicly seen as very, very successful. Right. That that'd be like John List and like people. John, like uh, Chris Watts, that oh, a hole, uh, fucker. Yeah, we both just watched. Uh, what was it? American Murder. I think an American Murder. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to ruin your day, go and learn about those two assholes. Okay, so that gets us back to La Llorona. There are, of course, because it's an oral tradition, variations upon variations of the myth. I'm going to tell you some of the more most common ones. Again, coming back to the base myth, it's a woman who drowns her children in a river. She then drowns herself out of guilt and or grief. Uh, She's refused entry into heaven and is doomed to walk the earth looking for the souls of her lost children. She wanders the banks of rivers. This is also something that's up for debate. There are a lot of things that say that she wanders the banks of rivers and lakes. Mm -hmm. I have found no stories that tell of her wandering the banks of like still bodies of water. It's always, yeah. So it's always rivers Acequias, ditches, arroyos, which will come into play. I Uh, mean, like growing up in New Mexico, I always heard of La Llorona specifically in relation to the acequias. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I guess a little bit of like cultural context for everybody. So here in Albuquerque, La Llorona was really used as a story to keep kids away from playing in the rivers, ditches, arroyos, the acequias, anything where water could quickly rush through. And it was, it, you know, it was this whole story of you got to stay away from, you got to stay away from the rivers, whatever, because La Llorona is going to come get you. And it's always that. It's always that she's going to come and snatch you. Yeah. I remember hearing that, that she would snatch you and like drag you underwater. It was less about being on the banks. It was more about being in the body of water right. and she would snatch you and drag you down. <laughs> there are other things that are just like, no, she'll just grab you from the banks and like drown just, you in the river. Just throw you in there. Yeah. So that seems cool. So she wanders the banks looking for her kids and she snatches up any, if she hears children out there, she uh, is basically like, oh, I'm going to snatch you and drown you instead. When she does this, when she finds the children who are not hers, after drowning them, she realizes that they're not her kids. And then, you know, she, she continues to drown herself in the same river, river over mm-hmm. and over again. So variation one is that a demon tricks her into killing her children. The demon tells her that her souls were already lost. I'm just going to say that again, if this was nugget of truth, this would fall under an acutely psychotic filicide. Yeah. Yeah. So the demon told La Llorona that if that she'd be let into heaven if she could find the souls of the children. But the demon, being a demon, was like was tricking her because the souls of her kids were already in heaven. 
Yeah. So she's just doomed on like a, a an endless task of trying to find her children um, yeah. when they're not down there. So after after <laughs> looking and looking and looking for them for a long time, she's I guess was just kind of like fuck it and just started grabbing other kids yeah. and <laughs> killing them. You'll do. Yeah, I guess. And that, that has like, again, I also remember being young and being like, but why? Like, Mm -hmm. does she think we're her kids or like, is she like, none of it made sense to me. I mean, Uh, that's what I always heard or what I was always told as a kid is that she thinks you're her kid. She she can't tell the difference. Ugh, poor thing. Okay. So variation two. And again, all of these always end with her killing her children in the river. Basically, mm-hmm. the variations come in the, the events that led up to this happening and sort of like who she was and all that. So variation two is that there's a beautiful woman named Maria. She lives in this rural town. And of course, she's poor, but beautiful. One day, uh, a wealthy Spanish man sees her, instantly falls in love with her. They're like, cool, 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 cool. She's got a little house. He like basically comes to live with her. She, she entertains him. She entertains his friends. She has his children. Like they're, they're married. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they just don't have the blessing of the church. Right. At some point, the man's family is like, yeah, no, you need to marry a Spanish noblewoman. Again, mm-hmm. tying into Cortez. And homeboy's like oh my bad and leaves maria with her children this next part is baller (laughs) (laughs) so uh hold on let me find it where is it where is it where is it so basically what happens is that on the dude's wedding day maria goes and stands in the back of the church dressed all in white and like watches the wedding happen and then goes home and murders the children Yeah. Again, she's so overcome with guilt that she her soul then wanders the earth. Third variation is that it was, again, woman named Maria, lived in a little village, all that good stuff. And Spanish nobleman falls in love with her, marries her, has children with her, but he's away for business all the time. And the more and more that he goes off, when he comes back, he stops paying attention to Maria and only pays attention to the kids. Mm-hmm. And one day he comes back with another young, beautiful woman, a new young, beautiful woman in his carriage. He only interacts with the children, doesn't say anything to Maria at all. And he leaves. And when he leaves, Maria's like, fuck this, takes her kids to the river, drowns them in the river. Yeah. I feel like that's the version I've heard most. Yeah. I, again, I just think it's all interesting because they're saying that the, you know, the sort of spouse, spousal revenge filicide is the mm-hmm. rarest one. And yet there are a whole lot of myths that deal with a vengeful woman killing her children to spite yeah. her husband. I wonder who's coming up with those myths. And again, just through, <laughs> through the lens of imperialism yeah. or maleness <laughs> it's a mystery <laughs> it's a mystery so again like or moving on rather uh, the story goes that la llorona can be heard weeping for her children on the banks mm-hmm. of the, these rivers in Ezequias. if you were out at night and you hear her cries death or misfortune will come to you so basically you're like you're fucked you're cursed if you yeah. hear her wailing there's also stuff about like if you hear her and her cries sound far away that means she's actually very close to you and vice versa Ooh. so she has this like there's like this disorienting that just element. gave me goosebumps <laughs> 
I'm going to call you just crying into the phone. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to record myself crying and I'm just going to leave it in your house somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, So she kidnaps the children. She finds mistakes them for her own begs for forgiveness. And any kids she finds, she drowns. She generally usually only appears in the evenings wearing a gown. I again have also heard that she's covered head to toe like mm-hmm. that you can't see her face, but you have you said that you've heard that you can see her face. Yeah. Like the, okay. the, well, and the stories I'd heard is that she's wearing like morning blacks with like a veil, but like yes. not completely covering okay. her face. Okay. That's covering her face, Scotty. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to hop on board, man. Okay. So again, I've only ever heard of her uh, near moving bodies of water. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then there's some sort of like... So that's, that's the basic story of La Llorona. There's a couple yeah. of odds and ends that I just thought were interesting, so I'm going to throw them in for you. I mentioned that already, that theories that tie Malincin to La Llorona are, are done in comparing the Spanish discovery, again, heavy air quotes, of the new right. world and the demise of the indigenous culture. There is no history of the La Llorona story in Spain. It is something that is strictly new world. That's um, interesting. Doesn't exist there. Like, there's no no record of it. Specifically, it seems to be in places, communities, wherever, where there are rivers, acequias, ditches, arroyos, that kind of thing. So again, it's all, I I think more than likely what we have here is a a myth, an urban legend that was created to keep children safe. I just kind of hate that it was like, and then this crazy woman went and she killed her kids. And if you don't be good, she'll kill you too. And I'm like, that's not likely. I'm just saying, (laughs) statistically speaking, it's not likely. Um, So for anybody who's listening to this and is like, what the F is an acequia? What the F is an arroyo? I'm going to tell you right now. Acequias are community-operated water courses. They pretty much originated in Spain. However, they were brought to Spain by the Moors. Uh, So they didn't originate in Spain. That's how they, rather, let me rephrase that. They ended up in this area of the country because of the Spanish. Okay. So uh, that's an acequia. They carry water. We have them all throughout here. If you go out into some of the more rural areas around Albuquerque, there's the whole thing where like, they open the acequias and the water goes flowing through them. And uh, it's mm-hmm. just a very cool uh, method of irrigation, like a community method of irrigation. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I think- they're all over um, northern New Mexico too. Yeah, I think the acequias are fascinating. And there's a whole like, what are they called? They're the, the, the pe- like there's a whole ceremony that goes with. Oh, yeah. With opening them. I can't remember, but yeah. I did not, I wasn't a good researcher and I didn't find that. So that's an acequia. An arroyo, I just learned this, an arroyo is actually, I thought arroyo was just Spanish for ditch. It's not. Mm -hmm. So ditches and arroyos are different things. Okay. Yeah. Ditches are generally mud embanked and they run north to south in Albuquerque along the Rio Grande. Yeah. Arroyos are concrete embanked and run east to west, bringing water from the mountains down into the valley. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they're I, did, I didn't know there was a difference. I didn't know either. They're technically two different things. Oh, okay. So again, what's unclear is if this is an urban legend based on an actual woman. There are also people who think that it was created to keep like, to sort of warn young women against the, against falling in love with like flashy, rich yeah. dudes. Uh, yeah, well, like you said, protecting virginity and what. Yeah, but also like, yeah, there's also like some hardcore class system stuff in there, right? Because yeah. she's always like poor. She's always rural. 
it's always a Spanish nobleman who comes in and then he's like, peace, I got to go marry a Spanish noblewoman. So that kind of stuff. La Llorona seems to be especially pervasive in New Mexico, especially around this area. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know about Southern New Mexico, but I know at least Northern New Mexico, she's all over. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm from Los Alamos, which is like its own thing, but like, yeah. I've heard about La Llorona my whole life. Like, right, like whole life, right? I mean, she is, she is kind of our equivalent of like the boogeyman. Yeah. And yeah, that, and that's what they say. And that's, that's what my mom said too, when I called her and I was like, did you have La Llorona in, in Bolivia? And she was like, no, yeah, not at all. Um, but stories of her exist throughout Central and South America, which is just, she's got, she's got a rep, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I did a quick personal poll and talked to people that I know who either lived in Texas or Colorado. There's also some California thrown in there since that's uh, mm-hmm. basically anywhere that used to be like old Mexico. Mexican people in these states all know about her. Yeah. All. Like she is... She's she's the boogeyman. Non-Mexican people in Texas, Colorado, and California have heard of her. But like I talked to a friend who grew up in Texas and both her and her husband hadn't heard of La Llorona until grad school for her, high school for him. And it was just something that like they kind of heard. It wasn't something that was like deeply entrenched in the community, which again, is interesting because that I don't feel like that's the case here. If anybody, no. if there are any native New Mexicans or old school New Mexicans who are listening to this, who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never heard about La Llorona. Holler at us and let yeah. us know. Yeah, because like I said, I mean, even in Los Alamos, which is sort of very culturally distinct from most of Northern New Mexico. Right. Like I heard all about La Llorona. Yeah. And again, the reason for this might be because we have all of like we have we have the Rio Grande, we have these mm-hmm. Asequias, Arroyos and ditches and the prevalence of flash floods yeah. that happen here might have just meant that, you know, the elders in this area were like, you know, went like M. Night Shyamalan village on us and we're like, okay, we gotta create <laughs> a boogeyman to keep these right. kids cannot keep these kids out of the effing river um so, i mean still in albuquerque you get the the skateboarders all in the arroyos all the time yeah and that's like this is the, like it is so bad and i i don't know if it's because like people want to go play in the arroyos or if we're in a desert so any body of water is like unbelievably alluring to yeah. us but drownings especially child drownings were such a problem in Albuquerque that 35 years ago, the Ditch and Water Safety Task Force was created (laughs) (laughs) solely with the purpose of being like, get out of the fucking ditches, guys. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like, it's been a long time, but it seemed like growing up, I would see on the news all the, like at least once a year, like helicopter footage of some kids like in the Arroyo as the water is like sweeping, sweeping them down toward the river. Yeah. I felt like our big things of like, this happened at least once, at least once a year was people getting swept away Mm-hmm. in the arroyos or ditches and then people getting lost on the Lalu's trail oh yeah of course like to the point where i was like why does anybody do it yeah well, why is anyone leaving their house like come on. <laughs> just stay in your house and watch tv please yeah you'll be safe so yeah so the ditch and water safety task force was created literally 
with the sole purpose of teaching young people about the dangers of ditches and arroyos. Their mascots were, in fact, the ditch witch that is commonly understood to be La Llorona. There were yeah. bumper stickers. We'll put it up on, on social media so you guys can see the picture of her. But she's like this little kind of witch crone woman. Mm-hmm. And she's saying ditches are deadly. And she looks very stern. So yeah, so... I don't know why they didn't just want to go with it being La Llorona, but they sort of were like, no, it's the Ditch Witch. It's obviously La Llorona. Um, What else else could it be? (laughs) What else could it be? More recently, they moved away from the Ditch Witch. So they had their Ditches is Deadly, Ditches are Deadly campaign, but they moved away from that to a new campaign that was called Ditch the Ditches. And when they, when they left Ditches Are Deadly, they left the Ditch Witch behind and adopted a new mascot for the <laughs> Ditch the Ditches campaign, which is this adorable blue monster. And his name is Laroyo. I love him <laughs> so much. We'll also post a picture of him. He is so unbelievably cute. Well, like you, like you were saying when you were texting me about it, I guess last night. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it almost is like defeats the purpose because he's so cute that it's just going to make kids want to get into the arroyo to find out. Yeah, like if I thought that Laroyo would come and save me from an arroyo, I would jump into it. Yeah, because <laughs> he's that cute. Yeah, because he's absolutely adorable. Um, at any rate, that is the uh, somewhat whimsical end to the haunting <laughs> tale of La Llorona. Well, like one thing that's interesting. And, and this may be some like Los Alamos scientist bullshit, Ooh, but like okay. um, when you were talking about how she could like throw her voice, yeah, sound, like she you know she could sound far away even though she's close or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I always grew up being told that oh well, where the sound like of the weeping woman, the crying comes from, is really just coyotes, like yapping in their cries, bouncing all over. Which is true. That does happen. Yeah. But that, but that seems like like Los Alamos scientists who just refuse to believe anything and be like, "It's coyotes." It's like right. my dad still insisting that it was a weather balloon in Roswell. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so Future I'm your sure podcast episode, like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that that's like conventional wisdom, or if that's just snotty Los Alamos scientists being snotty. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing, right? Like, there are some things. Like, if you're talking about an urban legend, I love just accepting the urban legend. Like, I don't, like, I'm, I'm, I know some people who are very much, like, very interested in doing that and being like, oh, no, it's probably the coyotes that are, like, like, howling and that's probably not what it is. And I'm just like, just let people, like, have the fun of believing in this. Yeah. If it's an urban legend, just let me believe it. If it gets, if it's a conspiracy theory, yeah, that gets into a whole, a whole other. other. <laughs> yeah, conspiracy theories, for the most part, I don't have a whole lot of time for. Yeah, I do want to do an episode on reptilian humanoids at some point. <laughs> okay. And and part of what's crazy about that is like how very quickly reptilian humanoid conspiracy theories just turn into anti-Semitism. Like, oh, in a way, <laughs> it's like nice. actually, you know who the lizard people are? It's the Jews. The Jews. Yeah. So. Um, can you just go ahead and say that you are Jewish? I am <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> just, just to clarify, I'm not yeah. calling Jewish people reptilian humanoids. <laughs> In case anyone's wondering. Disclaimer, we will say that Scotty is Jewish. I am, I, Jewish. I am also, in fact, Latinx for anybody who 
I don't know, might look at my picture and decide that I'm not. Yeah. Um, like, Why are you talking about La Llorona? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh my God, this got real shady. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like, I think conspiracy theory, I think like, like I will listen to JFK conspiracy theories all day long. Mm-hmm. I love JFK conspiracy theories. Pretty much anything that's come up in the last eh, 20 years. Yeah, I that gets into some yes. like tricky territory. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, there and particularly are- like government conspiracy theories, because ha- uh, having worked yeah. for the government, um, yeah. it's like the government can't pull off this shit. That you well, think you can. that's because you're a reptilian humanoid. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So there's yeah. La Llorona. Anything that's else? That's the story. Nope, that's it. That's all she wrote. Well, my uh, story is, of course, the infamous Mothman. Ooh. Um, so speaking of urban legends. So in doing research of the Mothman, I realized there's just like a ton of bullshit out there. And like a lot of it is like seems pretty unrelated. So like the challenge for me for this episode was like kind of just boiling it down to the most interesting stuff that seems kind of related because there's a thing that happens with Mothman stories that it's like anything anyone sees weird is like, well, that's clearly has something to do with the Mothman. Right. I don't think so. So I'm mostly going (laughs) to focus on the events of November 1966 through December 1967 in uh, the area around Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Ooh, Um, okay. There are um, Mothman-like stories from other places. So, like, for instance, between 1877 and 1880, a strange, quote, winged human was seen flying over Brooklyn. And then many people reported these sightings and said that they saw him flying toward New Jersey. Now, this is a weird thing I discovered in all these stories is that like all roads seem to lead to New Jersey with Mothman sightings. <laughs> um, like they'll like, start in like, West Ooh. Virginia and then the New Jersey people are like, I, we saw him too. So it's like, what? I don't know. Okay. And what some, year was this? So this is 1877 to 1880. So like, oh, okay. Long, Wait, long ass time ago. Wait, hold on. When yeah. did they see it flying towards Brooklyn or over Brooklyn and into Jersey? This was uh, 1877. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Between the wow. years 1877 and 1880, like, it was seen multiple times. He was seen flying at over 1,000 feet and performing swimming-like motions in the sky. What? And the people who were able to see his face described a, quote, cruel and determined expression. <laughs> um which is like, like I just picture my dad when he's mad at me <laughs> over New Jersey. Just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Disappointed dad flying over New Jersey. Okay. Um, and then also, so one thing is uh, Mothman stories are also like deeply tied into UFO lore. So I'm going to like get into that. So in 1905, a quote, Titanic white bird was sighted all over California. But the description sort of described it as a machine. So it says, the mis- quote, the mysterious machine appeared to be propelled by the wings alone and rose and fell as the wings flapped like a gigantic bird. There's obviously also like stories pretty much worldwide about giant bird-like creatures or giant birds. So you also, you know, of course, in 
this area we have like the Thunderbird stories. Right. Um, right. but you find this all over. You also have like, you know, people have tried to tie stories of like harpies to Mothman. You know, maybe there's some relation there. Okay. And then also in California, in 1946, uh, a writer uh named Ella Young described a bat-like creature near Morrow Bay, California. And so here's her quote. She says, On the golden sky, it looked very black. It came forward head-on and had a bat-like appearance, owing to the curvature of its wings. I'm not sure if there were motions at the extreme tips of the wings, but the strange machine, so she's calling it a machine too, seemed to stand still for several minutes, and its form was very distinct. Suddenly, it either lowered itself toward the horizon, or the bank of cloud mist made an upward movement, for the machine passed behind the cloud and did not reappear. Immediately after, a great flush of color spread over the sea. And then sort of most, yeah. (laughs) Like, what what color was it? And the most sort of related to the Mothman, because it was just a few years earlier, November of 1963 in Kent in the UK, Mm -hmm. there was the Bat Beast of Kent. So started with a group of four teenage boys were walking home from a party when they saw a quote brilliant ball of light hovering over a field it made no sound and then quote glowed with an intensity that was brighter than any plane they ever saw the glow descended into the field when the boys went to investigate a creature emerged from the trees they described it as having a thick hairy body thick hairy body large webbed feet and great membranous wings reminiscent of a bat's uh, okay so screamed and ran they were like fuck this yeah what would you do what would you do in that situation i would scream and run i mean like i think they had the appropriate response <laughs> <laughs> like i'm not sticking around it like i love weird fucked up scary stuff but if i see a fucking bat monster come out of the trees i'm trying to get the fuck out of there I I fear that my fear response too often would be to freeze. Well, interesting because that happens with a lot of the Mothman sightings. Oh, yeah. Uh, people I freeze would... because and they describe being hypnotized. What? Um, yeah. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Keep going. So they screamed and ran and they reported it to the police who were understandably very skeptical. But then more and more people saw it over the coming days. So it became known as the Bat Beast of Kent. So back to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And it's important to note that Point Pleasant is uh, right on the border of Virginia and Ohio. And it had what was called the Silver Bridge, which crossed the river okay. from Point Pleasant into Ohio. I can't remember the name of the town. That Silver Bridge is going to be really important. So put a pin in the Silver Bridge. Okay. Okay, so November 12th, 1966, uh, the first reported sighting of Mothman was from five grave diggers. And I couldn't find much more about this, but I just love that just they're dig. grave diggers. <laughs> in a town called Clinendon, which is actually not that close to Point Pleasant. I looked it up. It's about an hour and a half away. They saw a dark brown humanoid figure fly overhead from the trees. So this is the first supposed sighting of the Mothman. Then, uh, just a few days later, in uh, Point Pleasant on November 15th at 11.30 p.m. There were uh, two couples, uh, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette. They had been hanging out in this area that they called the, quote, TNT area around Point Pleasant. It was kind of on the outskirts of town. It was an old munitions factory that I believe was closed down, so it was kind of an abandoned area. And uh-huh. so the back roads around the TNT area 
had become known for teenagers using it both as like a drag racing area, which seems okay. not smart because I'm just imagining windy roads. Yeah. Um, but also as a lover's lane. So the fact that it was like two couples, I don't, I didn't find this anywhere, but they're probably like making out in the car, you know? Just, sorry, quick sidebar. I find it. Okay. First of all, let me say no, like I'm not here to kink shame and I'm also not here <laughs> to shame anybody who might have what would be currently considered alternative relationship styles Mm -hmm. but i think there's nothing creepier than two people who are in like four people who are independently making out like if you if you like you and your buddies want to all get together and make out cool i don't know why i get so creeped out at the idea of like my friend and her boyfriend are in the front seat and me and my boyfriend are in the back seat and we're making out and it looks like they were married couples so i'm like why do you even need to like go out on bullshit that's not even what they're doing they were totally (laughs) they were totally like exploring uh like polyamory send all legal uh inquiries (laughs) to amelia so anyway so they're they're hanging out uh by the munitions factory they're driving back and they saw a figure in the road um it was described as having glowing red eyes and then so here's what roger scarberry said he said it was shaped like a man but bigger maybe six and a half or seven feet tall and it had wings folded against its back. Oh, and by the way, just a sidebar, most of the information I'm relating is coming from the book, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, by a guy named John Keel, okay. um, who is like paranormal writer, UFO guy. And the book came out in the 1970s. Okay. Um, so, okay. Yeah. Hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. Go for it. The Mothman Prophecies was also a movie? Yeah, so it was made in, uh, into a movie in, I want to say, 2002. Although okay. I could be pulling that out of my ass. But they but the, updated it. It starred Richard okay. Gere as yes. a character that was based on John Keel. Okay. So the um, book was like a, a scientific look at... I mean, if like you can an, call it that. Right. But, but like yeah. an, a real... Anal- it wasn't like a, It wasn't fiction. Yeah. The subtitle, it says, The Mothman Prophecies, A True Story. So... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but like, I'll, I'll get to the book in a minute. But John Keel's okay, okay. important because he's kind of the guy who like popularized the Mothman myth. So yeah, so Roger Scarberry said it was shaped like a man but bigger, maybe six and a half or seven feet tall, and had wing, uh, big wings folded against its back. And then Linda Scarberry, his wife, said, but it was those eyes that got us. It had two big eyes like automobile reflectors. And then he continued, uh, they were hypnotic. For a minute, we could only stare at it. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. So this is like your fear response of just freezing, you know? And then they took off. And what they described is that the Mothman took off. And and a lot of the stories of the Mothman, he never flaps his wings. He just levitates like a helicopter and then swoops after you. Um, so roger continued he says we were doing 100 miles an hour and that bird kept right up with us it wasn't even flapping its wings and then mary millette said i could hear it making a sound it squeaked like a big mouse Ew! (laughs) this is terrifying yeah it, it is definitely terrifying so it followed them all the way back into town as they passed in the city limits they passed by a dead dog like on the side of the road, like roadkill. The thing stopped chasing them. They circled back around. By the time they got back around, the dog was gone. And then later... It stopped to pick up a snack? 
apparently or something oh, doing something okay. to the dog because the, okay. later they also found the body of a burned dog out at this tnt munitions uh factory so you know who knows okay so they reported it to the police the police went to investigate when they got out there one of the cops turned on his police radio and it emitted this like high-pitched squeal which the book describes as saying it sounded like a record or tape recording being played at very high speed Ew. Um, and this is something that happened off and on throughout the town is people would turn on the radios or pick up the phone and it would be like squealing and this happened over the course of like the next year so the story immediately kind of went public and a local reporter who i guess was a batman fan he dubbed it the mothman so that's where the name comes from like i said the mothman is very deeply tied into ufo lore so they just kept having sightings over and over and over again various people in this area not only seeing the mothman but seeing ufos things like that like the next day the day after the sighting uh, a red light was witnessed by many people circling in the sky over the tnt area this munitions factory and while that was going on in this book it does the thing of like when it lists a couple it doesn't give the woman's name because it's written in the 70s so right it said mr and mrs raymond wamsley um, that's a mouthful yeah exactly uh with their friend who is a mrs marcella burnett and then it sounds like she had a little baby with her they were driving home they saw the light in the sky um they were kind of watching it being like what the hell is that they said it didn't look like a plane then as they pulled into their house a figure with terrible glowing red eyes emerged from behind a parked car and extended <laughs> its wings so again, they no, screamed and ran. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, they ran inside. So just more sightings. And there's so many goddamn sightings of this thing that it's mm-hmm. like, like I just had to kind of boil it down to the important ones. And it's like sightings of this or sightings of a UFO or like weird things. It's just like all over the place. Uh, but one was uh, two volunteer firefighters saw a bird with red eyes, quote unquote, bird with red eyes. Okay. And then one of the firefighters said it was definitely a bird, but it was huge. We had never seen anything like it. Uh, then on November 17th, a music teacher teacher named, again, don't even give her a name, Mrs. Roy Groves. Um, Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yep, I get it. Like, not even mentioning her husband, but it's Mrs. Roy Groves. (laughs) She woke up to hear her dogs barking at about 4.45 in the morning. Uh, She went into the kitchen, looked out the window, and she saw a glowing object the size of a small house hovering over the trees. Before she could do anything, it made, like, a zigzag motion and, like, disappeared into the sky. This is, like, a couple days after the first sighting in Point Pleasant. Okay. Um, so it's just starting to be like all over the place. People are seeing shit. Later that afternoon, a 17-year-old boy was driving, I think, on one of these back roads. And he said he was pursued by a large bird-like creature. So pretty much without fail, everyone who saw the Mothman described it as terrible to look at. And then just its presence, like invoking this like deep, deep sense of terror. Uh, and then sightings spread. People started seeing the Mothman all over the region in neighborhood counties, and then all the way up into, again, New Jersey. People started seeing it in New Jersey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. People who reported the sightings, you know, it ranged from, like, the local teenagers who were hanging out at this munitions factory, doing whatever they were doing, to, like, elderly church-growing people. Like, you know, people who are, like, pillars of the community, supposedly. So it wasn't, like, if it was a hoax, it was like everybody was in on it. So, of course, people are trying to come up with all sorts of, like, realistic explanations. So some of the realistic explanations, like the sheriff said he, th- he thought it was a heron, 
like the bird, a heron. Okay. Other people said it sounded like it could have been a sandhill crane. And then uh, other people have said it could it could have been a large owl. But I mean, like, people are saying it's like seven feet tall. So, like, yeah. none of these things. I mean, I guess, like, herons and cranes can be pretty tall. So the I sightings mean, continued into late November, expanded all up and down the East Coast, including New Jersey. It was just another sighting. I think this is a UFO sighting. It says at 7.45 p.m., the Edward Christensen family of seven people were driving southward along the Garden State Parkway. So, of course, this is in New Jersey, just north of Mayville, when a bright red, green, and white object plummeted from the sky and disappeared directly in front of them. They thought an airplane had crashed until they were parallel to Burley, New Jersey. Then they saw a large glowing sphere just above the treetops a few miles to the front and right. Thinking it was a fire from the crash plane, they pulled over to the side of the parkway and stopped uh, to look at it. All of the witnesses got out of the car to watch. Traffic was light, but several cars did speed past them. As they watched, the object began to move, and they realized it was not a fire, but was some kind of flying sphere. It, it executed a sharp turn and came toward the witnesses, p- passing directly over their heads. It was completely silent. As it approached their position, three powerful headlights, quote-unquote, became visible on the front of the object. These lights appeared to be elongated and passed from the top of the craft to the underside. The object disappeared northward, and the witnesses experienced a strong emotional reaction. Mrs. Arlene Christensen and her sister Gwendolyn Martino became hysterical, alarming their four children. Oh, my gosh. And then two of the youngsters began to cry. They all returned to the car and drove home. Uh, So that is from the Mothman prophecies, that long quote. So in the end, more than 100 people cited uh, the Mothman or other UFO-type phenomena, all leading up to the Silver Bridge disaster, which I'll, again, put a pin in the Silver Bridge. Okay, okay. There were some very commonalities with these stories, you know, such as like the wings not flapping when it would Mm -hmm. fly. Other things that happened is people, even when they saw the UFOs, or even a couple times saw the Mothman, they got like burns around their eyes. Like it was like conjunctivitis, like their eyes would get inflamed and it caused even like temporary blindness with some people. What? Um, What? And then there were also cattle mutilations, which is something like in this area, particularly where I went to college in Colorado, Mm. Uh, the the whole cattle mutilation phenomena is kind of centered here, but they were having it out there during this Mothman thing. You know, people were finding their animals like dissected. I think this is when they said they found the dog that was burned uh, over by the munitions factory. And then of course there were some men in black experiences. Really? so, and, and a lot of them, like, I didn't write down any specific ones because there's just, like, some commonalities. So, for instance, there was a, um, a local reporter named Mary Heyer. She had been reporting on all these sightings and strange phenomena. She ended up befriending John Keel. So he cites her a lot. Okay. Um, and they had gone around and seen, like, they had supposedly seen a UFO together. Because John Keel, who I think was from New York, he was going around investigating all of these stories. Okay. Because he was this, like, UFO researcher guy. So she had people come into her office. She worked at the local newspaper and would basically ask her questions about John Keel, according to him, according to his book. And be like, do you know John Keel? Or they would say, we're friends of John Keel. And, and they're often described as having like darkish skin, like looking like they had a tan. 
Okay. Um, Racist. sort of an okay. anonymous features, but often like wearing like out of fashion clothes. Like they would they would have like a suit, but it would be like some weird old fashioned tie. Okay. A lot of times they're described as having like long hair, and they would come in to and like question her or question other people about her mm-hmm. or John Keel. And they said, like, a lot of their questions were, like, really nonsense. Like, they were really incoherent. They would come in and ramble. What? And then, like, repeatedly people were asked, you know, Mary Hare was asked, what would you do? She was asked this repeatedly. What would you do if someone came and ordered you to stop publishing these stories? Then other people were asked, what would you, what do you think Mary Hare would do if someone ordered her to stop publishing these stories? Okay. Um... And, you know, sometimes they identified themselves one woman in black, I guess you could say, uh-huh. uh, identified herself as John Keel's secretary. Like she was going around telling people she was John Keel's secretary. And he said, like, okay. I didn't have a secretary. And then <laughs> one of my favorite stories, he opens the, sto- the book with this story, that two people were in their house at night. And this is two days before the Silver Bridge disaster. Mm-hmm. They're in the house, and it's, like, late at night. Someone knocks on the door. And at this point, the sightings had been going on forever. The, the town had become this, like, hot spot. People were, like, coming in. So there were, like, strange people all around. Mm-hmm. Someone knocks on the door. They go look out the door, and there's a man with sort of longish hair and, like, a goatee wearing a very strange black suit and, like, inappropriate, like, dress shoes because this is a rural area. Okay. And he basically is like asking, like the woman answers the door. The man's like, can I use your phone? And she's like, uh, you need to talk to my husband. So she <laughs> go gets her husband. He comes and the guy's like, can I use your phone? And they won't open the door for the guy. And they're like, and so the guy goes away. And later they're telling people like, we think the devil came and visited us. Oh God. Like he seemed like Beelzebub because he had this <laughs> goatee. And then those two people were killed two days later in the Silver Bridge disaster. What I love about this story, though, is that John Keel tells the story, and he was like, "Um, actually, it was me. Oh, no. (laughs) He was was basically... Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, my God. He was was driving around with this Mary Hire. Mm -hmm. I think the car broke down. She stayed in the car, and he went to knock on a door, and and he was like, yeah, these people, like, wouldn't open the door for me. Uh, And so he, like, gave them a number to call, and the guy claimed that he called the number. Basically, he's like, yeah, that wasn't anything. That was me. Um, sorry, my beard freaked you out, basically. <laughs> sorry, my um, beard freaked you out, and yeah. sorry, you're dead. Right, <laughs> exactly, and sorry, you're dead. So I think a lot of these, like, men in black experiences, probably just, like, weirdos, you okay. know? Like, weird UFO people coming around harassing people. Yeah. Um, but some of them are very strange. In particular, now we've got to talk about Indrid Cold. So he's also known as the Smiling Man or the Grinning Man. He's described as being tan or dark-complected and then having, quote, small, beady eyes set far apart. I see the look <laughs> on your face. <laughs> He's also sometimes described as having no eyes, nose, or hair, but also another... I'm sorry. Say that again? No eyes, nose, or hair. No um, eyes? I think it might be eyebrows. I might have <laughs> okay. wrote that wrong. But no nose, no hair. Oh, no, I think it was no ears. Sorry, that's what I typed oh this Oh, my one. God. I was like, <laughs> why are people engaging with this creature? Yeah. And they're like, didn't have any eyes, no nose, just a mouth on a right. face. Exactly. And I was honestly a little weirded out by it. A little alarmed. Yeah. yeah. No, it was no ears, nose, or hair. Okay, okay. Um, 
and then, but also some description said he had slicked back hair. Okay. Um, he had this wide, almost like, almost like too wide grin. Mm. And then he's most often described as being over six feet tall and wearing a reflective green suit. So the first sighting of him was on October 16th, 1966, again, in New Jersey. Two boys, Martin Mouse Munov and James Jimmy Yankaitis, um, were walking down a street near their home when they saw a strange figure standing over by a fence. He stared at them with a huge grin and then chased them. They finally got away from him. And so here's a quote uh, from, I guess, Mouse. He says, Jimmy nudged me and said, who's that guy standing behind you? I looked around and there he was behind that fence, just standing there. He pivoted around and looked right at us. Then he grinned a big old grin. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this is, is also an area where like UFOs are being sighted like all the time. And then on November 2nd, so this is before the Mothman sightings. Okay. On 1966 in Parkersburg, West Virginia, a guy named Woodrow Derenberger was driving home uh, on Interstate 77. He heard a crash in the back of his truck. So he turned and looked, and I guess he was hauling like a sewing machine that had fallen over. But as he's looking, this strange vehicle comes up behind him and then comes around him and slows down. And he said, the way he described it, he said the vehicle, a black blob in the dark, drew alongside him, cut in front, and slowed. Woody Derenberger gaped in amazement at the thing. It wasn't an automobile, but was shaped like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center. It was charcoal gray. So Woody slammed on his brakes as the object turned crossways, blocking the road, stopping only eight or ten feet from it. The door slid open on the side of the thing and a man stepped out. I didn't hear an audible voice, Woody said. So he claimed that this thing talked to him telepathically. I just had a feeling, like I knew what this man was thinking, he wanted me to roll down my window. So the grinning man, who's described very much the same way that the boys described him, mm-hmm. approached the vehicle. He told, telepathically told Derenberger that his name was Indrid Colt and said that he meant no harm. Colt said he was studying the human race and would visit Derenberger again. Uh, then uh, the man got back into the vehicle and it like flew straight up into the air. No, what the fuck? Um, oh now I'm real suspicious of this story though, because like then Darren Berger claimed that Indra Cold visited him over and over again, actually led him onto the craft, and then he flew Darren Berger uh, to the planet Lanulos uh, right, in a galaxy awesome. of the Ganymedes constellation. Okay. Um, so like, yeah, at this point I'm like, oh, he's just like one of those, like he's he's one of those guys who's like, and the aliens thought I was special and took. Oh. So I'm not sure I believe that story. But okay. anyway, but there were multiple sightings of this injured cold. I think the name only comes from the Derenberger story. Okay. Um, so around the same time, again, in Point Pleasant, the Lily family have been reporting a bunch of poltergeist activity in their house. For instance, they saw like diamond-shaped lights floating around their house. Uh, and then their daughter, Linda, awoke to find a man in her bedroom. And so here's her quote. She said, it was a man, a big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked again, he was gone. So no one really knows, like, who the fuck this injured cold person is or creature is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he's often like identified as being like a man in black or an alien. Like, you know, I could do a whole thing on the men in black because there's all sorts of theories about who they are. Like people think right. they're government agents or they could also be aliens, whatever. Okay. So this takes us to the Silver Bridge disaster. Ooh, okay. So this is, again, all these sightings are happening over the course of sort of a, a little over a year. So the Silver Bridge was an I-bar chain suspension bridge built in 1928, and it Route 35 went across the bridge, crossing the Ohio River from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, into Gallipolis, Ohio. On December 15, 1967, it catastrophically collapsed. 46 people died, two were never found. Okay. So, you know, investigation pointed to the cause of the collapse being the failure of a single I-bar in a suspension chain due to a small defect 0.1 inches deep. It was also poorly maintained, the bridge was, and carrying much heavier loads than it was designed for. This leads to all sorts of theories around the Mothman. John Keel kind of, like, makes this argument in the book, and I've seen him make it other places. Basically, like, there are so many UFO and paranormal sightings that we can't think of, like, these aliens as visiting from some distant planet and coming here. He thinks they essentially live among us in, like, a parallel universe. And they come through and go back, come through and go back. So they're interdimensional beings, not, like, from a distant planet. But also people just say the Mothman is a cryptid, you know, sort of like a Bigfoot. Right. Um, A lot of people say alien, you know, which makes sense because of all the UFO sightings. And then some people relate it to the land around Point Pleasant being cursed. And I read a few things. There was one story that, like, the early American settlers, probably pre-American settlers in the area, Mm -hmm. claimed that a group of indigenous people told them Mm -hmm. don't go to this area because there's another tribe of, and they described them as white people Uh living in this area. And basically, like, but, like, don't go there because they'll kill you basically. And no one knows who that's supposed to be. There was also the curse of Chief Cornstalk. Chief Cornstalk was a Shawnee chief in the 1770s. He was widely feared by both other indigenous groups in the area and with the the white settlers. But eventually he allied himself with the white settlers, essentially against the other indigenous Mm. tribes. So he went to warn his you know, the settler, I think this is during the Revolutionary War. He went to warn the Americans who were like in a fort close by that the British were back there and basically instigating the other tribes to break a peace treaty and attack the settlers. So instead of thanking Chief Cornstalk, hey, thanks for the warning, they took him hostage along with uh, like his party that had gone there uh-huh. because they believed, well, Chief Cornstalk, his name strikes fear and all. So we need to have him here with us. I don't know what they were like thinking they were going to do with him though. But supposedly they treated him very well. And then eventually his son also came to visit and they were like, cool, cool, cool. Anyway, we're keep taking you hostage as well. And then two soldiers were ambushed and killed. They thought, and who knows who killed them, but mm. they claimed that, you know, by some, some tribe they were ambushed and killed. So they were like, let's go break into the where we're keeping Chief Cornstalk and all his people and just execute them out of revenge. Even though he was their ally because, Ooh. you know, white people are geniuses. Oh, so, bad move. Okay. Bad move. So bad. supposedly this land is cursed because of the murder of Chief Cornstalk. Um, so those are some of the theories. Other theories, of course, like I said, 
could be a giant owl, could be like a crane or something. Mm -hmm. Now, after the Silver Bridge collapse, the sightings died down or they started popping up other places. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this area became kind of less of a hotspot, I guess. But there have been sightings. So the most recent that I found was in November 2016, which is interesting because it's exactly 50 years later. A man was driving along State Route 2 near Point Pleasant and saw a creature jumping from tree to tree. He pulled over and took some pictures. And so I'll post the pictures on our Instagram. <gasps> okay. Um, now, I'm, I'm fairly dubious of this story because he okay. claimed, he said, well, he had just recently moved to Point Pleasant and claimed he didn't know about the legend. And I'm like, bullshit. Because like, Point Pleasant apparently is like Roswell. Like if you go to Roswell, it's just oh, aliens all the time. Okay. Point Pleasant has a big fucking Mothman statue in the middle of town. <laughs> like it's like this is what this town is known for. Right. So this guy to be like, well, I didn't know about the not Mothman. Okay. I just saw this dude in the trees. <laughs> like I don't buy it. I don't buy okay. it. And, and the f- pictures to me look kind of fake, but I don't know. Again, send all like cease and desist letters to <laughs> Amelia <and> Puerto. <laughs> yeah how dare you (laughs) (laughs) um but that's that's my theory so that is in a nutshell the story of the mothman that's nuts yeah that's nutty i don't like it (laughs) there's too much there's too much going on there i don't like it yeah i mean that's that's sort of the fascinating thing and the problem with the mothman story is it's Mm -hmm. not like nice and clean like an alien ufo sighting or bigfoot you know, it's like everything is happening with the Mothman. Like, you know, cow mutilations, UFOs. Right. Men in black. Men in black. It's just like everything is happening. Oh, and by the way, this massive bridge disaster. So who, who the fuck knows? But I personally like the idea of them being an interdimensional being that is a herald of doom just because that's creepy. That is creepy. I don't like the, yeah. I don't like, I don't like interdimensional sh- stuff yeah. that creeps me out yeah well because someone could be sitting right next to you but they're in another dimension you would never know yeah i don't yeah. like it i don't like yeah. it <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah Ooh, that was spooky af so that is the mothman yay good job so well i guess that is uh we're done with this episode all right good job everybody yeah way to stick in there <laughs> yeah, way to hang in there way to hang in thanks guys <laughs> So, uh, still have not set up an email address, but you can find us on Facebook. Look for the Wildest, Weirdest Thing podcast on Facebook. We're yep. also on Instagram. What's our Instagram handle? The Weirdest. I think it's just, I think it's the Weirdest Thing podcast. Is it the Weirdest Thing podcast? Let me, um, keep, we're keep experts talking and I'll look at it up. doing we, podcasts. <laughs> yes, it is. The, it is in fact the Weirdest Thing podcast. You can find us there. Um, uh, hopefully you're going to be able to be hearing these wherever you can hear yeah, yeah, podcasts. Yeah, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. It's all, we're recording these and we haven't released them yet. So it's all a mystery of where those yeah, are. Yeah. We'll let you guys know. <laughs> at this point, you guys will be like way ahead of us. Um, but whatever you're listening to it on, uh, be sure to subscribe. If you have any like creepy ideas you want us to cover, you can always message us on Facebook or Instagram. Yes. Eventually we'll have an, an email and a website set up. So, yep. Yeah. At some point. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. So listen friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true. And that's the weirdest thing.